sabrosura pa ti que Hello everyone, this is Pam of Cafe con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features fearless Latinx and people of color that break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place. Welcome to episode 163 of Cafe con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Odilia Rivera Santos. Odilia was born in Puerto Rico, and at the age of five and a half, she migrated to New York City with her family. Odilia learned English with Mr. Rogers, imagined the future while watching The Jetsons and saw her purpose in life through reading Abraham Maslow and Viktor Frankl. Odilia's mother taught her to appreciate what people do, not what they have, and her family told her to persist regardless of obstacles. Her poetry, fiction, and nonfiction has appeared in online and print journals. She studied comparative literature and writing at Smith College and applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Listeners, I really enjoy my conversation with Odilia because she has this peaceful demeanor with a pretty strong stance. So our chat is full of nuggets of knowledge. She will just keep sharing and sharing as we talk about her life. Manis, as we arrive in the middle of 2020, what is your plan? Do you find yourself confused with the need of healing and community? This is the time to create a plan, believe in yourself, and take action with grace and compassion. You can totally make it happen by yourself or really make it happen with the Power Sisters method. Aside from being paired up with your own Power Sister, you also gain a supportive community and additional guidance through group coaching tapping, monthly challenges, and co-working time. Are you ready to become a Power Sister Manis? Watch your goals become a reality, heal your limiting beliefs, and celebrate your accomplishments with the help of your Power Sisters. Head over to findmypowersister.com to sign up. Again, findmypowersister.com. Odilia and I talk about her experience in New York and how she saw the city compared to the beautiful island where she's from. She also shares with us how, as a child, Odilia made sure she earned her spot in the smaller classroom, how she determined what was the college track and the prison track, and much, much more. I'm telling you, she just shared a ton of amazing things. Pero bueno, sin más, here is my conversation with Odilia Rivera Santos. Sabrosura, Odilia, welcome to Café con Pam. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming. This is awesome. And I'm so excited to dive in because you have an awesome story. So let's start from the beginning. Who's Odilia? What's your heritage? Oh my God, that is such a complex question. I am a an Afro-Puerto Rican woman um, born in Puerto Rico. And my family migrated to the United States or the mainland, as we say, when I was five and a half, five and three quarters, depending on who you ask. And we went from a very small rural town near the beach to the South Bronx. So if uh, you want to talk culture shock, so there were small things as a child that I noticed, like going from a very, very bright place. You know, the sun is always shiny. I was always outside. I would get up really early, put on my dress and run outside barefoot. Mm. And it was, you know, all that bright color, the sun shining in, the sound of the ocean, going to the South Bronx. And I remember as a six-year-old thinking, it feels like nighttime because all the tall buildings, the darkness, right? And I was like, everything's kind of gray, like different shades of gray. 
And I just remember looking at all the colors and feeling, wow, this is very different. And there's no mango trees, no nature. You look across the street, there's a park with three rocks, you know. <laughs> so it was very shocking uh, to have that change. But it was a move that we made because my father needed uh, medical treatment and um, was only available on the mainland. So that was uh, the real reason that we moved. So, you know, like everything else in life, there were difficulties, but there was a lot of promise and opportunity that we wouldn't have had on the island. So I'm a poet, a writer, and a spiritual person having a physical experience. And I have been an educator in one way or another since I was eight years old. I'm always teaching somebody something. And I was thinking the other day about how much this culture values what people earn more than what they do. And that is something that I think would be really great for us to work on changing during this pandemic. Instead of thinking that only negative things will happen, we could also think about valuing what people do over how much they're earning. Mm, we can totally unpack that. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, we'll unpack that, but I do want to explore your story. So we'll put a pin on that. And for the people listening, we are recording this as we are in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic, because, you know, people might listen to this in the year 2050. So who knows? So this is being recorded May 2020. And we've already been, at least in California, shelter in place for at least a little over two months. So there's been a lot of changes that we'll unpack later. So going back to the beginning of the story or, or your transition from Puerto Rico to New York, I love when you talk about New York being a great place because that was my experience when I went to New York. I loved it. And I get feeling like this is a very great place. Like there's the metal of the buildings, the sidewalks, everything is great. So I love that. You also mentioned that and you noticed it as a child, like the differences between Puerto Rico, which is a place that I love. It's so beautiful and yes, super colorful and warm to the great place, which is New York. How was it growing up in New York? Well, you know, there were some stark differences. I was fascinated by everything and just observing like that people didn't make eye contact. Yes. Um, that was one thing when I was six, I would tell my mother, I'm looking at this person's eyes, but they won't look at my eyes. And she was like, stop doing that. What do you, what's wrong with you? But in Puerto Rico, uh, you see someone and they would look at you, señora, que tal, como esta? Everybody talks to everybody, everybody. I mean, at that time, things have changed now. But when I was a kid, everybody was really friendly and you'd go to the local market. Everybody knew who your mother and your grandfather. So the social capital was a big deal there, right? People mm -hmm. respected each other because they knew your grandmother was honest. So it wasn't based on her having had a college education. It was based on, you know, I've bought food from her before and she's always, she always gives me a very, uh, you know, high quality product and a good quantity for a decent price. You know, so these are the things that people really considered valuable. And here, one thing about coming to the United States was there was that coldness of the interpersonal relationships weren't the same. People took a lot longer to warm up to each other. And, you know, it was always interesting to me to see that in every situation where you are finding some suffering, there is also some meaning because I would cry about not being home. I would call it home home, right? Puerto Rico was home home and New York was home. 
And I would cry about it in the morning, but I would say, but I'm also getting to finger paint, you know, in, in school. And I'm getting to watch Mr. Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers. And he taught me how to speak English. So there were all these things. And I was always doing that kind of balance in my head, like, okay, I'm getting this, I'm losing that. I'm getting this, I'm losing that, you know, and just thinking, how can I focus more on what I'm gaining and less on what I'm losing so I won't be sad. And that's when I started journaling. So I was about eight years old when I started uh, keeping a journal and just writing letters to God and how do I feel today and what happened and what book did I really love this month. And I had a little book book where I kept all the titles of books that I was reading and which is my favorite character and why and you know, why do I relate to this person? So by the time I was nine years old, I was placed into a program for honor students. And my teacher was like, you have to be a psychologist and a writer. That's what you have to be. And they gave me a writing award that took me to the principal's office. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But the funny thing about having working class parents from this small town is that I was always like working so hard. And I was terrified that I was going to be the dumb one in kindergarten. You know, like I was like, Oh, my God, maybe I have to sign my name, I better learn how to sign. So I I went to kindergarten knowing how to sign my name, because I thought I was going to have to sign documents. I had no idea. Wow. The teacher was like, Okay, we're gonna teach you how to print. (laughs) You're already trying to, you know, so that kind of feeling like you're going to be behind unless you work really, really, really hard was just uh, an obsession with me. And when I went from the regular classes, which were really big and noisy to the small nerd group, I was like, this is my tribe. These are all the nerds, Latino nerds, Irish nerds, African American nerds that that was like our little group. How did you transition to that? Well, in the third grade, I tested really high in the state, whatever test they were doing in the class, because I don't think that we did the state exams till the fourth grade. I can't remember what it was. There was some, it may have been state exams, but whatever. I had a very high reading level. They were like, oh, this little girl is pretty smart and blah, blah, blah. And I knew that it was like sink or swim. Like I better hustle to, you know, get out of here. I don't want to be in a class of 30 people. So I got placed into that program. And it was a small class. We had a lot of special projects. They had more money. It was like a groovy bunch of teachers who were teaching us aesthetics, you know, and Nikki Giovanni and poetry and uh, movement and all this. Really, um, it was a lot, a lot of fun and very enriching for us. And that was a, a point for me where I said, okay, this is where I needed to be. I really needed to leave, even though I loved my little town and it was really beautiful the educational opportunities for poor people are just not there. Now, what are your thoughts as an adult now? Because you took the test. Are you claiming I'm an adult? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, having lived a little (laughs) bit more years, just a little bit. So now that you've grown up a little. (laughs) A little bit. What are your thoughts, knowing what you know, that you took this test and the test gate opened the door to this space where the smart kids were and Being in this class gave you this expansion of knowledge that the other kids, when you were in the bigger classroom, they didn't have. So what are your thoughts on that and the disparities of that education? Well, I remember writing in my journal when I was in the fifth grade that I was really happy to be in this special program because we had people from the zoo bringing animals to our class. You know, that was pretty special. Uh, We went to the opera. We went to plays. And we were in New York City going to all the stuff that rich people do, right? Right. So it was like an experiment in 
the Bronx and we had like a private uh, school education in the hood. So I remember writing in my journal, I'm really grateful. This is wonderful. This is exciting. My teachers think I'm a brilliant kid. They're very encouraging. And it's really unfair that they're warehousing other kids. And I remember saying, it's like we have the college track and the prison track. Mm. And you have kids who are being ignored. And I remember just, I had such crazy, like meticulous notes on, on other kids. Like, okay, this is a really talented, smart kid, but he's a goofball. And they're transitioning him out of this honors track into prison track. Wow. You know, and I remember like, this is really unfair. And what would be the answer so that the kid who isn't, I'm an introvert and it doesn't mean I'm shy. It just means that I I get recharged from sitting by myself reading for five hours and not noticing it's been five hours. And then I go back out into the human, you know, (laughs) prey and like, oh, hey, I like you, but I just need to be alone sometimes. That's where I get my recharge. But I remember thinking and writing like the kids who aren't able to say, I got to, you know, show off a little bit, even if I'm criticized, because this is the way you're going to get ahead in this context, the ability to shift in different contexts and say, okay, they're going to call me names, but this person in the front of the room is the gatekeeper. So I can't be tethered to all these other people, what they think about me. And I used to get criticized like, oh, you, you smart at it, Alec, you think you know everything. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Thanks for sharing. Because I was like, this is the gatekeeper, this lady in the front. This is the person who's going to allow me to get to the next level. And I want to be able to go anywhere I want to go, right? Not to be limited by not knowing English, not knowing Spanish, not knowing how to change my behavior, right? That if you're at a party with your relatives and you're dancing like a crazy person and screaming, that may not be acceptable at a dinner party at Harvard, right? Right. <laughs> so you just have to, and to understand that you don't lose your identity because you're adding something to your identity. Right? Mm. How did you know that at that age? I was a compulsive reader researcher. That was one of the gifts of having parents who didn't speak English, that I was always reading stuff that was way beyond my reading level because I was researching like tenant rights, right? Like I got to see, I got to talk to the landlord and I got to look stuff up about what tenants can do and can't do. And this is back when everything wasn't 70 languages in New York. So when my mother or father had to go to the hospital, I was the interpreter. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote letters in Spanish. I remember making a call from my mother when I was 12. Uh, I think it was a landlord. And I did my adult voice as well as I could. And I was like, I'm calling on behalf of Miss Santos. Uh, uh, you know, and the person was like, are you her lawyer? I said, no, <laughs> I'm her daughter. And they're like, okay. I said, I'm her 12 year old daughter. Like what the hell? And the person started laughing, you know, but just it, the pressure to translate documents and be an interpreter, do research, talk to adults with a sense of authority was incredibly helpful for me as a student. Cause I was like, I'm not scared of this shit. I just was at a hospital talking to a doctor about my mother's heart condition. Like, bring it. You know, like, mm-hmm. you can't be intimidated in school when you're dealing with life and death issues with a, your mother's illness. And so I think, you know, we have to look at these limits as great opportunities for growth, right? I love it. Well, and I think you speak to that immigrant experience and the resiliency that immigrant children go through. I mean, the 
being the interpreter, being the attorney, being the landlord, being the advocate, being the like, I'm gonna stand up for me, my my mom, my grandma, my family, everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially now the times that we're living in, that resiliency that's been built, it's what's gonna get us through. And I've noticed, I've witnessed in other people that have not had to live through things like that, that it's like, the world is ending, right? And so I love how you're pointing out like, yeah, those things were hard. They were challenging. And they just allowed me to become just stronger. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. In Spanish, we say that that which does not kill you makes you fatter. And in English, you say what doesn't kill you make you stronger, right? <laughs> we like food. <laughs> <laughs> we like to eat. <laughs> okay. So you go through all of this and then you get through school. So you follow that, like you're going to be a writer. And what was the other thing? That well, the teacher said? Um, educator. I, I've also worked as a translator, interpreter. And as an educator, what I enjoyed was the fact that I designed everything mm. that I taught, right? So I wasn't working with a curriculum. I created my own. So you've always rebelled. <laughs> well, it was cool because they were still meeting all the academic expectations, but I was using well-being as a foundation for everything. And I remember uh, new teachers coming in who had never worked with adult populations and it's adult education, which means usually people have a reading level that's fourth grade to maybe ninth grade most of the time. And sometimes you get students who are a little bit higher. But I remember teachers coming in and saying to me, I don't want to listen to these stories. I'm not a psychologist. And I said, well, if you don't listen to the stories, you will have no students mm. because you have to understand if somebody if somebody is 50 trying to get their reading level up to the fifth grade level, they have a story. For sure. And they don't need to be shamed about the age and their reading level. And you need to let people tell that story in a safe, psychologically safe place. So they feel like, oh my God, you understand that it wasn't laziness. You know, it wasn't uh, my not having the intelligence. It was trauma. For many people, mm -hmm. right? The delays are usually related to trauma, not people not wanting to make progress. Nobody says, oh, I really don't want to make progress in life. Nobody says that. Totally. Well, and that goes to, to the story, right? Like, just like you have that story, you've been all the things as a child and that shaped the way you are. Same thing with those adults. And if you 100% with you, if you don't hear that part out, then we get, it's so easy to judge. And create our own conclusions. And bias, right? So mm. I remember talking to white teachers who were dealing with African-American male students, young men, and their attitude was that they need a discipline. And I said, nope, they need love. They need a positive reinforcement. They need positive attention. They need to be told that they have strengths and you need to teach them to speak about themselves as people who are agents for a positive change in the world, as people who are capable and to respect what they respect, instead of saying, no, this is garbage. Don't look at that. Don't read that. You say, okay, why do you love that hip hop artist? Why do you love this particular writer? Because that was a very particular type of racism where you're going to say, I'm going to dismantle your culture and give you another culture that's going to make you successful. And I said, no, you don't rip someone's identity from them and then make the, they're going to come to class. That's not the way it works. You're attacking the person's psyche, which is a very deep wound. Instead, you can say, oh, you know, I don't know about this um, hip hop artist. So I want you to write me an essay on him because I want to learn from you. 
Every conversation is about an interdependent relationship, people learning from each other. And when I've worked with eight-year-olds, I'm like, okay, tell me your story. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear it. And you let them talk and tell a story and you go, oh my God, I learned so much from this little eight-year-old. Like, So just being willing to accept that a person who is different from you is an opportunity to learn, not an opportunity to correct and to let people uh, show off what they do well, right? When I worked with immigrants, I had this Mexican-American woman. I loved her. She wore like 75 colors every day. (laughs) And, And I would say, where do you get these outfits? And one day she goes, no, I make everything I wear. I said, oh my God, that's amazing. And she had like a second grade reading level in Spanish. And I was teaching ESL English as a second language. And she said to me, I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to be in this class. And, you know, to me, I was like, really? I'm exciting. (laughs) And she said, I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to be in this class. Every day I wake up, I'm so excited. And I said, why? Because I was like, what's going on? And she said, I've never been in a class before. Oh, my gosh. She was like 55 years old. She said, I have never been in a classroom before. Wow. And she said, everything I learned, I learned from relatives. So I read a little bit. And she had an amazing vocabulary when she spoke because she talked to a lot of college educated people. And, you know, people that have a low literacy level tend to be very good listeners and have a great memory because you're compensating. So she spoke beautifully and she was like, can I write on the board? I said, (laughs) sure. And she said, oh, my God. I'm writing on the board. So I had her do a presentation on making dresses. That's awesome. Because she had the lowest reading level and she was embarrassed. And I said, so you're going to do a presentation in Spanish. Shh, don't tell anybody. On how to make a dress. And I gave her some fabric and she made a little tiny doll dress in the class and showed everybody. And, you know, from that point on, she was such a proponent of continuing education no matter what, like so excited about it. I love it. Well, I think teachers are such an important role for students, no matter the age. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I've had like beautiful experiences with educators and teachers. Like I remember my chemistry teacher, like she changed my life. Like during chemistry class, we made cheese (laughs) because that's chemistry, right? And so that she truly embodied like let me teach you the practical use of chemistry. We're not going to learn formulas. We're not like, it's part of it, but you're going to learn the formula of cheese. And we're going to learn how it's being made from a chemistry standpoint. And then on the other end, I've also had teachers that completely marked me because they profiled me and they like all the things. So I do think educators are incredible. And I love how you are talking about seeing people from the human side of them, not like, it's one more number in my class or it's, you know, it's like actually seeing them. And that's so important, especially for people that who have not been seen before. Well, it's really fun to learn from other people. And, you know, if you have some 16 year old African-American kid who's rapping in and I'm like, what are you singing? Like, I don't know. And they'll tell me who it is. And I'm like, oh, I got to look that up. Now I got to do research. And if I get a Pakistani student and I'm like, oh, what are you eating? I got to see what... And just to, you know, one thing that I would do with my handouts was I would include every student's name in my handouts. So I would have some literacy, you know, document and just make like 50 pages of different assignments. And they would say, where'd you get this? How come it has my name on it? (laughs) 
<laughs> it was really funny because they thought I had gotten it from a book and, and they had such an unusual name. They were like, no. I said, I just made it up. That's why your name is in it because I wrote it. And they're like, oh, snap. You know, <laughs> so just making people feel like education is something that everybody needs, right? And every singer, every actor that you see on TV, they are students. They're always researching a role. They're always memorizing. They're using their cognitive functions all the time. They're using their social emotional skills all the time, right? Networking and, you know, being around a lot of people. And just to teach them that education is not a college thing. Education is a life thing. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there are people who do only one thing and there are people who do 10 things. It depends on the person. I could never do just one thing. I would be bored. Same. <laughs> that's why teaching is good. You throw everything in teaching, right? You say, oh, today we're going to do music theory because that's math. <laughs> <laughs> right. It works. <laughs> so did you ever leave New York? Yes. I went to Smith College, which is in a really beautiful little town in Massachusetts, Northampton. Really good bookstores. Some good bean soup there. One of my favorite <laughs> places for bean soup. I also uh, studied, I, I did some studying in Spain and in Cuba as well. Mm. And went to um, UPenn, just finished up at uh, UPenn in the Master's in Applied Positive Psychology. When I told my friends I was studying positive psychology, they're like, of course you are. Right. <laughs> I thought you made that shit up. <laughs> Didn't you make that up like 20 years ago? I'm like, no, it's actually a program because they thought I was making it up, they're joking. And I was like, no, it's look at, because I really am that person who says, where is the lesson? Totally. Always. Find the lesson. Don't. And Viktor Frankl says, despair is suffering without, I think, learning or something like that, without a lesson. So something about really retrieving some wisdom from your pain. Otherwise, you really lose. Right. You're going through it. And you, your pockets are empty on the other side of it, right? You want to have something, some lesson, some wisdom. Love it. Okay, so this is a good time for a break. Let's take a quick coffee break. Cafecito. Cafecito time. So, Odile, do you drink coffee? Yes, I do. How do you like your coffee? You're in New York, I'm, right? Right now? I'm in Jersey now. Cross the bridge. <laughs> I do not put sugar in my coffee. Good. I don't either. I know. I like half uh, and half of my coffee. Nice. So are you more of a, I make it at home or you go visit a coffee shop? There's a coffee shop near her that's pretty good, but I make better coffee than <laughs> the coffee shops around here. So I prefer to make it at home. And now with COVID, I'm like, you know, I don't need to go to any place in person. I told Sean, I won't be anywhere in person to 2013. So <laughs> I mean, it's 2023, 2023. 2023. Oh, yes. Give me another three years and I'll show up in person. I just think like, you know, science is not fast. People think, oh, we'll have a, no, we're not going to have a vaccine soon. Even the tests for COVID have been found to be inaccurate. Oof. So it's like a fast science is for people to shut up, like calm down. Mm -hmm. But it really is an accurate science. Mm -hmm. Like we got something out there that's floating around, but a good vaccine that really works is going to take a while. For sure. Okay, on my end, because we're in the coffee break. So on my end, I am going to talk about Genteel Coffee. I've mm -hmm. not been. <laughs> I always support local coffee shops. So because of COVID, I haven't been able to go to local coffee shops, but it's on my list. So Gentle Coffee is in San Diego, and it's a rustic industrial type coffee shop right now. It's They're open for takeout, Party. which tells me that I can go, yeah, and maybe order something and pick it up. So we'll see. I will probably post it when I do. 
our best coffee shop around here is Revolution. Revolution Coffee, which is a local guy, he was laid off and he was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And he said, I'm going to go into the coffee business. So he and his family, they just learned to roast coffee and it's been like six years, but it's really good. Wow. That's really cool. I get the coffee there by the pound and make it at home. Nice. Supporting local. I love that. Revolution. Perfect. Revolution. (laughs) All right, let's go back to the show. Okay, Odilia, so let's keep exploring. Earlier you talked about like you couldn't do one thing. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on society standards of like doctor, lawyer, teacher, and that's your path for 50 years until you retire. We are currently living and existing in a world where that's no longer the thing. However, we still have that. Some people still have it in their brain of like, that's the path, including also like getting married, having kids, like that path, right? Some people still have it. Where's your stance and how have you handled it in your life? Well, I am a big fan of self-acceptance, self-compassion, loving kindness, self-care, and all of that um, relates to you knowing who you are, independent of other people's opinions, and following that path. And for me, my father was a carpenter, and he also was uh, worked in the sugarcane fields and had a fifth grade education. My mother had a sixth grade education, not because they didn't want to go to school, but they couldn't afford it, right? They had to go to work. In my family, you get married young, you have children. And that means you don't think about it. That's just what you do. Right. And I told my father when I was eight, you know, when he was trying to tell me to clean, I said, I'm not, I don't have to do all that because I'm an intellectual. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an intellectual. I don't, I'm, this, all this dishwashing and cleaning and I, it's not really good for me. Good. Yes. And my father's like, okay. And he, he calls my mother. He's like, come, come get your daughter. You know, like what the hell is she talking about? And you know, my father's view was like, these Americans are filling your head with all these crazy ideas. And I think that if you have critical thinking, you're going to shop the different cultures to which you're being exposed and there'll be an amalgam, right? Of connections you're making. You say, okay, this is who I am. I am a person who believes the humanities heal people spiritually, psychologically. And that was my focus from a very young age. You know, I went into a program where they really emphasize the humanities, reading poetry, reciting poetry, writing it, writing essays, being creative, dancing, studying music, studying art. So that was from elementary school through Smith, where I studied comparative literature and creative writing. And I always felt like I could totally change my mood by picking up a book or listening to a piece of music and saying, oh my God, I was feeling a little sad, but now I feel so excited by just listening to this music. I can't sit still. I got to jump around. And I always thought it's magical the way you can change your emotions and also the way you can keep adding pieces to your identity and dropping pieces that don't work. So the idea of Oh, you've got to be a lawyer for the rest of your life. You've got to be a professor. <laughs> you know, Nabokov was a professor. And when one of his novels took off, he was, he took off. He was like, bye, I'm no longer teaching. I'm just going to, one thing I read about him was that his wife was the one who corrected the essays that students wrote while he was a college professor. Cause he wanted to write his poetry and, and chase butterflies, you know, cause he was a butterfly researcher. I think that people who have critical thinking skills and have a real zest for life are going to be curious about many things. And if you are a great writer and actor and you're also a neuroscientist, 
you can write a play about neuroscience and act in it, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have three in one. There's a great documentary on uh, Amazon Prime Video called Jacob. It's about this New York City guy who has, I think, five master's degrees from Ivy League schools. It's on my list. I haven't watched it. And it is hilarious because he's a tour guide in New York City. He's the, the head of the psychiatric department at a hospital. He's a lawyer. Uh, he's a playwright. He's a novelist. And he just said, well, everything I do, everything I've studied, I put into my writing. So I've always said that working with victims of trauma, with men in homeless shelters who've just come out of prison, with victims of domestic violence, that's my MFA. That was my master's in fine arts because Mm. listening to stories for thousands of hours, that's a writing degree. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I just did a workshop for former students who reached out to me and said, hey, can you do a Zoom workshop? And I said, sure. And so I said resilience from the positive psychology perspective. And I was like, am I going to prepare for it or just show up? And I said, ah, just show up. Stop being, you know, a Capricorn. So I just showed up and I did my little PowerPoint little charts and gave them some simple advice about what to do, suggestions. And everybody was like, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I feel transformed. And I was like, I have no idea what it was that made them feel so good. But I was really thinking about how much I do read and how much I do retain. And that one beautiful thing about being a a person who loves to learn and a nerd is I can go talk to anybody and we're going to have a great conversation because I know I studied, you know, Tibetan music, (laughs) you know, like whatever. (laughs) And I think that humanity really needs people who are curious about each other. Mm -hmm. Stories are the foundation of our psychological, spiritual selves and we can shop our stories, even the most painful ones to find lessons, right? So we can be like the MMA fighters. MMA fighters say I, I win or I learn, but I never lose, right? That's like Mm -hmm. their, so kind of having that attitude of, I can look at my own story as an objective party and say, look at this really painful event and how strong I became and how somehow was able to reach out to people who help me increase my wisdom, because we do that for each other. Conversation is a way of increasing, you know, the wisdom of all all the um, participants in that conversation. I think any artist or person who's interested in psychology really benefits from five years of teaching, right? Most people are not going to do it because it's a lot of work. But it, I did teach for over 15 years um, with, you know, like including positive psychology strategies that I now know were positive psychology, but, <laughs> but just working with people to acknowledge their pain and also help them find the growth and also say, okay, what do you respect about yourself? I love it. And, and the reason why I asked this question is because especially the people that listen, we, I mean, most of them are Latinx and even people that who are not, like we still face the expectation of the parents. And so being able to say, look, this is what you wanted me to do. What comes to mind is my, my dad, for example, my grandfather was a, a lawyer and he wanted all his kids to have a degree. And so I grew up with like, you have to have a degree in order to be worth it. And so my dad, he he's a musician by ear. He does all kinds of crazy things. And he graduated because his dad was like, you're not going to live here unless you have a degree. So he, when he graduated college and his master's, I believe, he handed his degree to his dad and he was like, now I'm going to do what I love. And he went on to be a musician and to be like all the things that he does. So 
he taught me at an early age that like you can do and be whoever you want to be. And in my case, I didn't have that pressure of like you have to go to school from my father, but I had it from my grandfather. So it's interesting. And to your point of your beautiful, eloquent answer that you gave us is you stand up for yourself and you choose the path that you want to choose. And it's totally valid to change your mind. Like it's totally valid to say, didn't work. Let's find another one. Right. And I think it's good, you know, because if you have too many choices, right, and there are people who have extraordinary talent in 10 areas. So if you have too many choices, you can be that indecisive person who really is not being of service in the world. Because I think that that's what it boils down to that if you're working as a corrections officer, and you don't know what you want to do with your life, you're still being of service in the world, right? You're not hiding somewhere. For me, I filter everything through writing language, you know, like I'm really a linguist. So whether it's a film or uh, psychology, I love neuroscience. I always tell Mm. people, my next life, I'm going to be a neuroscientist. But then I go, wait a minute, I might actually do that now. (laughs) I'm like, wait, wait for the next one. Right, right. So, you know, it's good to have a filter because that makes you slow down a little bit and not be impulsive about changing directions. So if you could say, what is your, the foundational thing of your life? It is language for me, definitely. And I'm a published poet as well. So uh, writing and thinking about others, writing and listening to stories, you know, that's always been really important. So whatever I study, it's going into my writing. And, you know, if I'm writing about psychology or neuroscience, people are like, are you a poet? Like, this is very elegantly written, like not the kind of passive voice. Scientist, yeah. You know, like the wooden way. And I think, you know, it can be an an enjoyable experience. You can throw in the, you know, throw in all the science words. It's cool. You understand the material, but can't you have it, you know, have a little internal rhyme? Like, what's wrong? Right. And I love that because it is like you find your anchor and then from the anchor you expand. So piggybacking on that, what would you tell to the people that are like, okay, how do I find that anchor? Okay. It's really about joy, right? And I always mess up this Walt Whitman quote, but it's uh, whatever you do, let it bring you joy or produce joy or something like that. And it really is true that in families where they really try to push you toward having children and getting married at a young age. They try to instill an idea of nose to the grindstone life, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a serious grown-up, you don't enjoy your work, right? Those ideas that, do you know that work means you don't have fun, right? Work means that you're not giggling, you're not smiling, like you're not working right now, you got a big smile on your face. And this is what families who think about making their kids very stable will tell you. And what I would tell someone is if you want to be a filmmaker, get on right now. It's a great time to get into that field because everybody's looking online for anything. People are becoming famous from TikTok videos because they're creative. They're creative and funny and they're performing. And then they get on the Ellen show, right? So this is a great time for that field and find a mentor and If you're not a person who wants to go to college and remember that college now is probably going to be online, not in person, because if you go in person, you don't know what's going to happen, right? With this disease, find a mentor online and reach out to that person. Look for webinars. A lot of colleges are offering free webinars with very well-known filmmakers. And that's an opportunity for you to talk to somebody who's worked with very uh, famous 
actors and directors and all this stuff, whatever, who is saying, I want to do something. And, oh, there's a webinar. And you get on the webinar and there's only 40 people on there. And you're going, really? This guy worked with Scorsese and he's going to answer your questions and only 40 people show up. So you got to keep your eyes out. And when you uh, go to a Zoom meeting with these very successful filmmakers, in the chat box, can I have a list of books? What do you recommend? Ask for advice and ask the person, do you need an assistant? I can be your virtual assistant because having that connection leads to a bigger connection. And this is networking and getting to know people and showing up and giving somebody some wisdom that they're going to carry forward. And also to understand the marketing and business side of it, you know, that if you are a great marketer, you can make millions cutting a watermelon in half on YouTube. If you're a genius and don't understand marketing and you have a million products, your house is full of products that you can't sell. So marketing is part of it. So it's art and commerce, right? And I think this is the the main area where we fail as a culture. We tell kids, oh no, you can't be, you can't be an artist. Well, you're you kidding me. You can't do that. And what we have to tell kids is, oh, you want to be an artist? What kind of artist? Here are your supplies. Mm-hmm. And does this make you happy? Oh, I see you're giggling. This is your career then, right? <laughs> right. And also to say we can do other things and to understand that if what gives you the most joy in the world is to be a painter and you're teaching painting and you're writing books on painting, you're going to be amazing, right? You're going to build your talent and to not let anybody limit who you want to be. And, you know, really that old expression, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. Mm. It's always useful. Yes, I love that. And I do want to touch on the fact that, especially for people of color, we have that limited belief of work has to be hard because their parents worked hard, because their grandparents worked hard, because their experience has been hard, because historically, generationally, hardship has happened. And so I talk to clients all the time, you're a coach too, where people are like, well, but it's not hard enough. It's this almost guilt of like, it has to be hard. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think people could focus some time in meditation to be able to decipher what your feelings really are. Am I feeling mm-hmm. worried or am I feeling excited, right? right? Am I feeling anxiety or is this kind of the bubbling joy that you're like, oh my God, this is Christmas every day. Do I feel obligated to have negative feelings out of guilt that I get to do what I want and other people don't, right? So it's important for people of color to choose a cause, one cause or two at the most. So you don't drive yourself crazy and feel anxiety when you're doing something wonderful and special and you're, you know, having champagne in Paris and thinking, oh my God, the farm workers, right? right. You have to limit your activism, because this is a well-being and mental health issue. We cannot save the world. And one of the things I tell my clients is try to help five people a day. Try to help 10 people a day. And that's really easy with social media. Mm-hmm. You spend 15 minutes looking up a positive piece of information, like a free meditation workshop. You put it on Twitter, you have helped 10 people, right? It doesn't have to be like, I'm going to go down to the soup kitchen Right. And work for 12 hours. And that kind of uh, factory worker nose to the grindstone mentality is something that once you have expertise in education, whether it's formal or informal, you can say, wait a minute, I'm being paid for my talent, not my hours. Mm-hmm. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> you awesome. know, we, 
<laughs> okay, Odilia. So the last two questions. We could keep talking. But yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So last two questions. Do you have a remedio that you want to share? And this could be a spiritual one, a, <gasps> anything. Oh, I'm going to give you a really simple one. When something doesn't go your way, and you're going to look at your part in it, right? Because you can't correct other people. Instead of asking a why question, ask a how question. Why takes you into rumination. Rumination is this negative spiral, negative feelings. You start to, ugh, it really takes your energy away. But how is like, oh, I'm going to move into the future. Why is moving backwards? How mm. is moving forwards? So instead of saying, why did I say that? You could say, how could I have said that differently? How will I say it differently next time? Because I needed to say that, but I didn't say it in a, an elegant way, in a graceful way. How will I convey that information the next time this situation occurs, right? So that's my little remedio. That's perfect. Also, Especially rice now. at night is really good. Rice and milk. Mm. Arroz con leche. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the how question, it's, it's so timely now in the times that we're living in because everything, we could really easily fall into the why. Why is this happening to me? However, if we shift to that how, then, I mean, it, it just completely shifts everything, our existence, our perspective, our vibration, everything. So thank you for that. That was, that was beautiful. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you live by? Oh, wow. Well, I guess I think being a pragmatic Optimist is really important because I am not overly optimistic where I don't see reality, right? So to me, being a pragmatic optimist means I see the situation and I see the exits from where I'm sitting, right? Love it. Awesome. Adelia, where can we find you? Aquí, en mi casa. <laughs> Um, until so, 2023. <laughs> until 2023. So if anyone is interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching, or if you'd like me to speak to your organization about working uh, with at-risk populations, you can just contact me through my email, coaching at gmail.com. And you could also check me out on LinkedIn, Odilia Rivera Santos. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Do you hang out on LinkedIn more? I have the Facebook I have the Twitter. So I have different, I have my academic kind of Twitter where I have all my nerdy science research stuff. Nice. And then I have my writer Twitter and I have my other Latino rebels kind of funky Twitter with everything. And I tend to share a lot of information about helping people because I think that it's so important to take every opportunity to help others, you know, and you mm -hmm. have to obviously take care of yourself first, but it's like social media is such a great opportunity to help people. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of people criticize uh, social media, but it really is about, again, creating a filter for yourself, right? You can mute words on Twitter. You can mm -hmm. mute phrases. And I have, if you look at academic Twitter, there's a lot of amazing things yes. that people are sharing. And you can ask all sorts of questions about, you know, what research is being done. So I think anything can be a weapon, right? It, mm -hmm. Or it could be a great tool. So I've chosen to use social media as a tool to help others. I care about all people and I care for anyone who doesn't have critical thinking skills to be able to decipher what to let in and what not to let in. So that's one of the things that I like to teach one-on-one -on -one to people and also to groups. 
I love it. And we didn't talk about Latino Rebels, but you're one of the early, early founding members, right? Yes. And yeah, you can, I think I have two articles on their site. One was an interview with uh, Blitz the Ambassador, who is a um, musician from Ghana. Mm -hmm. He just uh, made a film that was, I think, produced by Ava DuVernay, but I can't quite guarantee that she produced it. But anyway, it's it's in her production company, but it's doing very well, incredibly talented. And he was one of these artists who studied business and created his own record company because no record company wanted his music. So Hey, when the table's not there, you make it. Make it happen. Yes, I love it. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much, Adelia, for coming to Cafe Campam. This was great. Yeah, no. Listeners, stay shining. So there it was, my conversation with Odilia Manis. What do you think? I truly loved her perspective on teaching and how she invited us to meet people with curiosity versus judgment. One of my favorite parts of the interview is when she shared about her students and what and that student who showed the class how to make a dress. I would love to know what's your favorite part of this episode. Screenshot it, tag me on Instagram. I really want to know more. También... Remember, there are other ways to continue the conversation outside of social media. You can join the Stay Shining Club, which is our online community. It's free of charge to you. It's similar to a Facebook group outside of Facebook, and you can come on over and engage in the conversations that we're having. Not only have conversations, we share ideas, we support each other, and we even have a thread for playlist to listen to while you're working. (laughs) It's really simple. Head over to stayshining.club. If you really love this episode and this is your first time here at Café Con Pam, welcome. So of course, like I already mentioned, you can join the Stay Shining Club. You can, of course, share this episode with your friends. And if you can do me a huge favor, you can subscribe, rate, and review on the platform of your choice. You can also join our tapping community on Patreon and... Like you heard me in the beginning of the show, you can join Power Sisters. Lastly, if you are a business owner looking for more accountability, my mastermind Junto is about to open its doors. Send me a DM or an email and let's chat to see if you are a good fit. And as I have talked about reviews, let's see what the review of the week is. This is called Café con Pam Makes Me Feel Like I Belong and Leaves Me Inspired by Janet Itzel. Coming from a person that never listened to podcasts before to now slowly incorporating them into my morning routines when I lift drive, your podcast is my favorite. I always look forward to tuning in and when I do, I feel inspired and energized. More importantly, I feel like I belong. Your Spanglish and joyful ways to connect with POC who are making a difference in the world reminds me that anything is possible. I want to say more, but then that will become an essay. Gracias por compartir, Pam. I hope to meet you in person. Oh my gosh, Janet Itzel, of course I want to meet you in person. I cannot wait for that to happen. And I believe we've had conversations maybe on Instagram, maybe an email. And thank you so much for your review. When I read them for the first time, I have cried. I have had, these are tears of joy because of course your reviews tell me is one, that you're listening and two, that the work that we're putting into this show, it's actually making a difference. And that is absolutely the goal. And the part when you say that you feel like you belong, oh my gosh, that completely touched me because when I came to this country, I didn't feel like I belonged. So if listening to the conversations that we have in the show make you feel like you do, my purpose is 
fulfilled. <laughs> so thank you for letting me know. Thank you so much, Janet Itzel. Now, don't forget to follow at Cafe Compan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Listeners, thank you so, so much for hanging out with me today, for choosing to be here one more week. I am so, so grateful for you. Y como siempre, stay shining. Sabrosura, pati, que, que.